Senate Democrats introduce a new take on the assault weapons ban. Plus, Maryland shall issue President Mark Pennock on his group's two recent court victories. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our Black Friday sale, which is still going on uh, right now. Uh, we end, I guess, at the end of today on uh, when this goes public on Monday, but it's 20% off sale. Um, and yeah, I mean, we don't do sales very often, so you should check that out because if you get a membership, you will get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of news and analysis that you will not find anywhere else that will keep you up to date on what's going on with guns in America. This week on the show, we are talking about the latest developments in Maryland, where we've seen two significant federal court rulings uh, dealing with the Second Amendment. And to go over that, we have the president of Maryland Shell Issue, who is the counsel in both of these cases, Mark Pennock, with us today. Welcome to the show, Mark. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. And can you tell people just a little bit more about yourself and Maryland Shell Issue for anybody who doesn't know? Sure. Maryland Shell Issue is a nonprofit 501c4 advocacy uh, group. Uh, we're nonpartisan. Um, we don't take sides in partisan debates. So we're a uh, single track, uh, single focus on gun rights on in Maryland. And we, our members include thousands of people of all political parties and all political persuasions who are interested in pursuing their, their rights to uh, self-defense under the Second Amendment and other rights that are preserved by federal and state law. So we exist to defend those rights. Uh, as to me, I, I'm a lawyer and have been for 48 years. I started out in big firm private practice in DC and moved to the Department of Justice where I litigated cases in the Courts of Appeals and Supreme Court as part of this, as representing the United States in, in that Department of Justice. And I retired from there and I've been litigating ever since I was, um, as counsel for and uh, Maryland Show Issue and, and private parties. So it's, uh, I can't get it out of my blood. I'm, I'm afraid I'm a lawyer to the day, the day I die here. <laughs> well, you've had a couple of recent successes here uh, in, in these cases that you guys have filed against, um, well, a state law and a county uh, ordinance that dealt with, um, well, handguns in both cases. The first major ruling we got um, deals with Maryland's, I think they call it the handgun qualification license. Is that yes. right? And, and uh, HQL. Yeah. A pistol purchase permit would be another way of, uh, of terming it. But then uh, federal court struck down this law as, as unconstitutional because it doesn't pass the historical, uh, the historic traditions test set up in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin by the Supreme Court last year. Can you just give us a summary of what the ruling was? Sure. The, the uh, handgun qualification requirement in Maryland was, is truly onerous. Not only did you have to have your fingerprints taken, but it had to be taken only by a certified live scan vendor, of which there are, are very few in rural areas. It had to do four hours of training, but the training had to be by a state certified by the Maryland State Police instructor. Uh, you had to go to a range where you can fire one live round. In most of urban Maryland, uh, you can't fire a live round legally except on a range. And in most of urban Maryland, there are very few ranges. 
So you had to find an instructor who had access to a range and pay the range fees. So you had to do all of that, pay $50 application fee, pay for the, the training, which can be up around $200, and pay for the fingerprinting, which is around $75 by the time they're done with it, because that's done by a private vendor and they're free to set their own fees. And then by the time you're done, you had to wait 30 days, up to 30 days, for the Maryland State Police to approve you in order to uh, have the license, which then would permit you to do the same thing over again. And essentially, before you can buy a gun, you would then have to submit your handgun qualification license to the FFL, who uh, would then submit that application. It's called the 77R process after Maryland's form goes back to the state police where they do another background investigation, the same one. And you have to wait seven days, assuming that it's not disapproved, uh, before you can pick up the handgun. So it took months to go through this process, months. And no state other than Oregon had a, has such a process. It is extremely burdensome. For example, there are no ranges in the city of Baltimore. So if you were going, if a city resident wants to get a, uh, a handgun qualification license, they would have to leave Baltimore. And that sounds like, you know, so what? But there are a lot of people in Baltimore who don't have cars. And the hundreds of dollars of costs associated with this process basically disenfranchise um, the poor, or the less capable people with less means, from uh, enjoying Second Amendment rights. Now, the court held, and I think properly so, that uh, part of the right to keep and bear arms includes the right to acquire them in the first place. You can't bear or keep something you can't acquire. And the court held that expressly, and that seems perfectly correct. So under the first step of Bruin, that you have to see whether the text of the Second Amendment actually covers uh, what you're complaining about, the conduct, the court the clearly held, and quite correctly, that the right to acquire is indeed implicit in the text itself. And then after that, then it's simply a matter of whether or not there was an historical tradition and uh, such kind of permission to acquire regulations uh, that existed during the founding or anywhere in the history of the United States. And there simply isn't. And nor did the state even attempt to show it. Uh, so it was a a straightforward application of the text history tradition test that Bruin actually articulated, and it seems to me perfectly correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things in there I want to uh, d dive into real quick. Um, uh, the first part is, I, you know, I do think this is one of the first cases where I've seen a federal judge address what I've called the uh, the one weird trick that plaintiffs hate theory of Bruin which is this idea that um, beyond the literal keeping and bearing parts where, uh, you know, owning and carrying uh, essentially uh, nothing else about firearms is protected. Uh, and you've seen this employed a couple of times. Uh, it's kind of honestly, um, Oh, they tried it in this pretty case. lazy yeah. <laughs> arguing. But uh, I think this is the first time I've seen a federal judge actually, you know, respond to this. And it doesn't take a whole lot of, uh, I guess, brain power to understand that in order to keep arms, you have to be able to acquire them in some way. Um, right. And therefore, there are second. He found that there are Second Amendment protections for 
the uh, the acquisition of firearms, right? So this has been addressed in other cases in the context of sell privately made firearms. Yeah. And one judge has held, and other judges have held to the contrary, that there is no Second Amendment right to manufacture your own gun, even though the history of the United States is full of examples where that's how firearms were acquired. Indeed, the entire colonies were basically homemade guns being made at home or by small shops. So that's a, that really has implications elsewhere. Because the acquisition doesn't mean just going to an FFL and buying one and yep. requiring other means as well, including making one. Yeah, I saw this also come up with um, Colorado recently. Their three-day waiting period was challenged, and the, the federal judge in that case, uh, the district judge there, upheld the three-day waiting period on this idea that basically the Second Amendment doesn't protect the acquisition or sale of firearms yes. at all. Yeah, it's Rocky Mountain case. Yes. So, so it's interesting. It's interesting to see a, a judge. Uh, one of the first examples that I've seen of a um, uh, majority rejecting this idea and explaining why. Well, why and it's it the first court of appeals decision to do so, but it has other applications as well. For example, the city of Chicago used to argue that that there's no right to, uh, to have a range in the city limits because right. there yeah, is the a barren keeping arms and the seventh circuit has held uh, in fact implicit in the right to keep and bear arms is the right to become proficient and remain proficient in their use yeah um, i should i should say post bruin this has come up previously in federal courts where it's been roundly rejected uh the idea that the second amendment doesn't apply to anything beyond keeping and bearing uh, right literally. so that's step one of bruin that's right and i a solid argument can be made that you know the right is not strictly limited to keeping and bearing arms right. that you already have. Yeah, I mean, uh, did you? Uh, I, I I wonder if this got litigated at all in this case because you know obviously the ruling is pretty straightforward on this point. Where it's, I think it's like a paragraph basically. He just explains that in order to keep arms, you have to be able to get them in some way, uh, and and so therefore the text of the Second Amendment is implicated by this handgun qualification license process that you just uh, described to us. Well, uh, it's it uh, it was a major I, point that the dissent made in this case, the HQL case, mm -hmm. because according to dissent, Judge Keegan thought that the Second Amendment right only protects the right to keep firearms permanently, or it would only bar uh, statutes or laws that um, ban possession. Um, mm. And that's a very dangerous notion as well. And she wanted to uh, remand the case to see what the practical implications, whether or not the effect of the HQL litigation, uh, the requirement that is, actually kept people from acquiring. Now, we yeah. know that, in fact, it did because we have record evidence of thousands of applications being made to the Maryland State Police for this handgun qualification license that were never finished because presumably because the uh, the applicants simply couldn't afford or couldn't make time or otherwise were unable to go through all the hoops. Uh, and hoops is what the state called it in our argument. All the hoops associated with uh, getting the acquisition. I mean, there's no doubt to me, and I was there in 2013 when this requirement was adopted in the state legislature, that the whole purpose of this was to discourage the acquisition of handguns. I mean, that's it's intended to be an obstacle. And then the state police piled on to that, this requirement of a one live round. 
Now, I'm a certified instructor, and uh, one light brown is of no instructional value whatsoever. Right. right. I mean, it's, yeah. the, the whole Same thing here. is is silly if you want to actually show competency in handling a firearm. I mean, you can do that without ever firing a light brown, but you certainly don't acquire any level of proficiency by firing one light brown, especially from a handgun. Right. So it was intended to create an obstacle so because access to range is limited. And the, and the legislature knew that most ranges in Maryland are privately owned, usually by clubs, and not accessible to the public. So it created the obstacle purposely. Hmm. And, and I wonder, you know, if, if you got into this argument at all, because the reason I call this one weird trick is that it's essentially saying that you can ban the, make, the manufacture and sale of guns, you just can't ban the possession or or carry of them. And that seems fairly obviously problematic because it would make the Second Amendment effectively pointless. I would, I would say it's idiotic myself because it simply doesn't survive even the moments worth the uh, contemplation just for that reason. So they ban the sale. Okay, how are you supposed to get it? Well, you could ban gifts too, and HQL did. Uh, you can ban receipt, uh, which what they did as well in the HQL uh, statute. So how are you supposed to keep and bear anything if you can't acquire it? I mean, it's just right. crazy. You're going to ban manufacture? Well, all right. Then how are you going to even get to the point where you can acquire anything? Yeah. Did uh, did it come up at all? You, you, there, there have been, uh, I think Eric Rubin uh, is a well-known uh, scholar, uh, law professor, who's talked about this point previously that there, you know, there may be some sliding scale here of protection for the further you get away from keeping and bearing. Um, did, did anything that complex come up or do you expect it to come up in, in future uh, appeals to this case? I, uh, no, it didn't come up at all in this case. In fact, uh, the state pretty much conceded that the right extended to the acquisition. And their okay. whole focus was on the step second, the second step of Buren, um, which was whether or not there's an historical analytical um, analogy to uh, yeah. to the restriction. Do you think that might come up in the next step of this case if it does yeah. get appealed? I it might, but the state has pretty much waived it, in right. my view, by not bringing it up before. Okay. So, so you, the focus yeah. here is is essentially uh, almost entirely on the historical tradition aspect and. In that sense, they didn't offer any uh, actual explicit analogs at all Because there aren't any, and they didn't. And they confessed it over argument that, in fact, they were unable to find any historical analog from any time period that uh, required governmental approval, permission, if you will, to uh, before there was uh, anyone allowed to acquire a firearm. They relied on the militia statutes from at the time of the colonies to show that the you know, training could be required. But I think the majority quite properly pointed out that wasn't a condition on the acquisition of firearms. In fact, you were required under the militia laws to bring the firearm that you already had to the right. militia when you mustered. So right. that didn't go anywhere. And the court properly rejected that. And not even the dissent took issue with that. And they also argued that, that this was designed to keep Danger, uh, people who are dangerous from acquiring firearms, but um, Joey quite properly said, well, this applies to everybody, not people who have been convicted of a crime or otherwise committed anything that's dangerous to the public safety. And so that analogy failed because the 
the how and why that Buren requires people to focus on has nothing to do with that kind of uh, regulation. So, I mean, it, if you apply Bruin by virtue of the test it sets out, the result in this case should have been an easy result, and I think that's where the majority was correct, and it is an easy result. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you described how how this came out pretty pretty much the way I would describe it too, in terms of um, you know what the majority's reasoning was there and what the state's arguments were. Um, I am interested though in one one section of that dissent uh, got into an issue. Uh, that that I've seen um, that that I've been wondering about from Bruin, uh, especially from the dissent, the uh, sorry, not the dissent, the concurrence from Justice Roberts and and Kavanaugh, that you know effectively defended uh, shall issue gun carry permitting, because as the dissent in this case points out, Bruin puts gun carry on the same plane of protection as gun ownership, um, and uh, at the same time, you have uh, there's a footnote in the majority opinion, and then there's the concurrence, which I think is more relevant. Um, uh, you know, at least sort of for tea, re tea leave reading of where the court might go. But um, regardless, uh, that the, the concurrence talks about how shall issue permitting is could could potentially be all right under the Bruin test for gun carry, and so that kind of implies that. Perhaps it's okay as well for gun purchasing. And so, uh, you know, what do you think of that argument? What was what, what your response to it? How do you uh, see that, um, you know, playing out as you pursue this case further? So I, I think you're talking about footnote nine, majority opinion. And mm -hmm. that is what the concurrence uh, talked about. Yeah. Justice Kavanaugh and Justice, the Chief Justice. And that was in the context of um, vast majority of states, I think 42, actually had shell issue permitting systems for public carry. Right. And that was very They clear. do now. Yeah. Well, didn't th then they did. And now, of course, um, so no, I just mean uh, they didn't at the founding era. Obviously, there was well, no gun they didn't carry permitting the founding at all. era. But the court, and the court does this from time to time. I've been litigating the Supreme Court a very long time, and sometimes they simply say, well, this, these are the parameters of our opinions, and this is what we're going to say in footnote 9 about the parameters of opinions. And I think what the court felt, and this is my supposition, is that this has been adjudicated by the states in such a way over time that there's a broad consensus with 42 states that this is a something that can be reasonably required for carrying in public. None of those states, by the way, had this sort of arduous um, permit to acquire system, not one. Maryland, at the time this case was adjudicated, was the only one. And of course, Maryland was shell, may issue. So you can't point to any of the 42 states and say, well, they applied the same sort of licensing requirement to uh, the acquisition of a handgun or a long gun or any other type of weapon. So there is that distinction right there. And I think the majority picked up on that distinction because, the, as Heller said, the right to defend yourself in your home, which is acquisition would permit, is most acute. And because that's at the heart of the castle doctrine, the common law, where the, uh, your home is your castle and you, you don't have a duty to retreat from it, uh, 
in where an intruder is knocking at your door or busting through your, your windows. So there are different considerations in terms of defense and oneself in the home and of the home, and then defense of oneself outside the home in public where public safety considerations are more important. And that distinction was recognized in all 42 of those states because none of them required that. So that's a, a principal distinction that the majority drew upon in this case, the HQL case. And I think it makes a lot of sense too. So you throw that into the fact that 42 states have drawn that distinction. And I think the court was willing to accept that. You know, you can say, well, there's no history on that. And they, they probably felt that it had been adjudicated to be reasonable uh, and consistent with the Second Amendment in all these states. So they were willing to accept that uh, without getting into where the history of that is. That's an interesting argument. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard it put that way before. And, um, uh, you know, the court certainly does, uh, especially in Bruin, focus quite a lot on what, uh, you know, what uh, the consensus sort of is. Um, there is. And this now, is not supposed to go back to the consensus at the founding. But but I do think that they often try to avoid. It, it does seem to me like the court wants to avoid striking down laws that are uh, either extremely broadly popular or, um, you know, have, have been around for a very, very long time. That seems well, to be their, their their conservative in and especially in that particular sense. The court is um, always sensitive at least to the to practical guns. implications of, the, of its rulings. And, but yeah. this concept of adjudication is well recognized and has been applied in other circumstances in uh, Supreme Court decisions as well. So that's nothing novel to it. So, okay. Well, we'll, we'll have to see what they actually do if that, gets, if, uh, that question gets presented up at, at the, the court. I am um, confident at some point it will be because hmm. of just issues being raised all over the country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we'll sure. probably have a circuit conflict on it at some point. Yeah, perhaps even this case itself. I hope not. Mm-hmm. I hope this case goes away. <laughs> yeah, yes, I would, that would be the uh, the the best outcome for your your uh, members. I imagine it's just for this to not go anywhere past this point. But uh, I, ima- I I'm guessing that uh, you you think the government of Maryland is going to appeal this ruling, right? Well, I don't know. Um, hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, so there is some risk to appealing, right? They well, they have 14 days to decide whether to seek rehearing or rehearing in bank for the whole court. Uh, that's set by the federal rules of appellate procedure. And if they don't within those 14 days, then the mandate issues uh, in seven days thereafter under the rule 41, and it becomes final. Now they still have 90 days to seek cert, but there's no circuit conflict here. Now, they can always argue, and, and certainly states have argued this before, that invalidation of a state statute is sufficiently important towards Supreme Court review. But the court has historically looked less um, favorably on an invalidation of federal statutes than it has on state statutes, uh, because the Solicitor General is in court saying, you know, the world's going to come to an end if you validate this federal statute. You, you'll see that in Rahimi and the other cases like Range. Um, but state statutes are invalidated all the time. So that doesn't necessarily going to be enough to, to carry the day with a cert petition with, in the absence of a circuit conflict. But, uh, you know, if they went to en banc, I feel like they'd have a decent chance in the Fourth Circuit because it tends to... Um favor the government in gun restriction cases to this point. Well, um, we do don't know how they the, might do that. We don't know uh, because the Fourth Circuit has, this is the first time the Fourth has spoken on 
after Burton. And I like to think, and cast me as naive perhaps, but I've been doing this a long time and I think judges feel bound by Supreme Court precedent and bound by their duty to faithfully apply Supreme Court precedent. They're not all completely result over you know? Some are, for sure, but not all. And I'm willing to believe in the absence of contrary evidence that they're not going to go against the Supreme Court on flimsy bases. Hmm. I mean, well, it wouldn't make sense. I, I mean, I, I, I think you're right on that. I don't think that courts are entirely uh, polarized in that sense. They're not always ruling the way that you might expect from who appointed them or what, what have you. Uh, judges, federal judges, but um, uh, yeah. So I, you, uh, you think perhaps Maryland is not going to to appeal? Is that where you're at? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to venture a guess on whether they will or they won't. Uh, okay, it's, it's, uh, it depends on more on Maryland politics, I think, than the merits mm. of the case. I mean, uh, mm. we, we saw Governor Moore say Chicken Little style that the sky was falling. And you know, this president of the Senate, Senator Ferguson saying, oh, the sky is falling. But when you think about it, uh, the public safety implications of this case are um, non-existent, simply because this is for the acquisition of a handgun for self-protection in the home. And so it's not talking about people walking around in the public with this. Mm -hmm. So unless you think guns in the home are, are a great public safety risk and that everybody should be discouraged and, and all obstacles erected to discourage that, uh, the public safety implications are pretty de minimis. All right. Well, for what it's worth, Thomas Lester, who's a spokesperson for the Maryland Attorney General, Anthony Brown, who's a Democrat, uh, told us when we wrote about this ruling that uh, the, the attorney general's office is, quote, weighing options for next steps in this case, which prevents us from any further comment at this point. So yeah. uh, publicly, I don't believe they've said anything about whether what they will do. Uh, and I guess we'll just have to wait and see on that one. Yeah. Uh, but that is not the only case that you have won recently. Right. Right. We won a case in Mon uh, Montgomery County Circuit Court, state court. Uh, Montgomery County, after Bruin was decided, decided, oh, my God, we can't have this. So they. They uh, did a New York or a New Jersey and said, we're going to enact a local ordinance that said, you guys with permits are no longer going to be exempt under our statute, which was the current law. Uh, you're going to be subject to uh, everything. And we're going to find sensitive places to include every place within 100 yards of this list of 15 places. And the 15 places includes churches, private schools, whether regardless of whether the property is privately owned, uh, are publicly owned. And on the literal language of the ordinance, it doesn't even matter whether the place is otherwise open to the public. So in one of the places, for example, that um, was banned is a library, privately owned or publicly owned library. And if you have a private library, and I'm sitting in one right now, um, well, arguably that's a prohibited zone now. Now they made an exception for uh, possession inside the home. I mean, actually inside the four walls, not on your property. Maryland law allows you to possess a handgun without a permit on your property, uh, real estate that you actually own. But not Montgomery County, it has to be within the four walls. So if you stepped outside your door onto your property, you could be in violation of this ordinance. And then they have this 100 yards within all these places. And if you look on a map, and you use Google Maps with this, you can identify 
uh, all these places that they have, and there are thousands of them. I mean, literally, there's 693 parks in Montgomery County. There are, and they range from 6,000 acres to a, a city block. There are 695 churches and places of worship, all of which are banned. That means the synagogues that have been using uh, permit holders and to actually provide security and have been given permits on that basis by the Maryland State Police back before Brune was decided, are now incapable of using these individuals to provide security. In fact, they could even carry themselves on those places. So that basically leaves, leaves synagogues and churches naked uh, from a self-defense perspective. And you don't have to be very sophisticated to understand that's a problem. And, so, and, uh, and Montgomery County, for anyone who's not from Maryland or the area, uh, that's the largest county in the state, right? It's over a million people, the largest by population in the state by far. Mm. It's got a $6 billion budget. It's uh, right? just outside of Washington, D.C. So it borders Washington, D.C. A lot of people live there. Um, and uh, additionally, at, at arguments in this case, at least from what the judge wrote in his ruling, it, it sounded as though the county admitted that there basically wasn't anywhere you could uh, legally carry a gun, even with a permit, in the county, right? Well, what they admitted was their intention was to make it impossible to carry with a permit. And that's quite true because you literally could not carry very far. Uh, without running into one of these 100-yard buffer zones. Like, for example, the, the buffer zones included most of four, Interstate 495, which is the beltway around D.C., most of Interstate 270 uh, going north from D.C., all the major thoroughfares in urban parts of and most of the rural parts, uh, minor roads as well. You can't get in and out of the county without covering a buffer zone because so many of those portions are covered with uh, parks. Uh, so it was basically intended to and did quite successfully uh, make it impossible to carry with a carry permit. What the now, yeah, yeah no, so for a very big impact there. I think there was also a, a ban on, um, on the possession of unserialized uh, firearms. Yes. That you make yeah. it, you know, homemade guns, ghost guns, it was called. And, and, and components, by the way, which they right. defined to mean uh, the barrel of a long gun. You know, the slide or cylinder of a handgun. In other words, if you could take your serialized handgun, bought out of an FFL perfectly legally, and break it down for cleaning, all of a sudden you have a prohibited component. Right. Because and, it doesn't have a serial number on the barrel. And that's, of course, not a uh, firearm under federal and state law. Right. Those components aren't. And they reserve the exception to the, the home exception to firearms. So you literally couldn't possess a component in your home under the literal reading of the, the ordinance. I mean, that's how ignorant uh, Montgomery County is about federal firearms law. Yeah, so very poorly written ordinance. But uh, I guess to, this, this was blocked by the judge not on Second Amendment grounds, but on state preemption grounds. There's a law in Maryland that says localities cannot make their own gun laws, uh, that it's a state, uh, the state has to make them, uh, well, right? That's the basic ruling. There is a broad preemption provision and there are exceptions, which is what the county was uh, relying on. But separate apart from that, uh, that's provision, which is a broad preemption, there are 
five other statutes which broadly preempt local regulation of regulated firearms, which in Maryland are, are handguns, and broadly preempts um, this localities from regulating the transfer of long guns. And there is also in Maryland law a implied preemption where if the state has a comprehensive system of regulation, then the court will imply a preemption of local regulation to the extent that it attempts to regulate in that area. And it, the judge found, and quite correctly, that Maryland has an extremely comprehensive and, uh, system regulation of all kinds of firearms, long guns, uh, handguns, you name it. So it was not hard for him to find such a comprehensive system, nor was it difficult for him to find with all these existing laws on the books that the Maryland law, the uh, county ordinance that is directly conflicted with it. So yeah. that was the basis of the court's ruling. Yeah, so a significant um, win for you guys in that case. Uh, what, where does that stand now? Is this they're still waiting for the the injunction to be? So the opinion uh, issued out uh, directed the parties' counsel to meet and confer about the wording of the actual uh, declaratory judgment order and a wording of the actual injunctive order. Mm -hmm. There are two separate orders in Maryland and a third order uh, certifying the case for immediate appeal because it, those these opinion didn't dispose of all the claims of all the parties and thus was otherwise non-final so it couldn't be an appeal until they had a final order so but you can certify it for immediate appeal and that allows the parties to take an appeal and so he's he's indicated a willingness to do that we asked for that and the county did not object so uh, once those orders are entered uh, and we haven't yet conferred with the, the county yet, but we have 10 days to do that. Uh, I'm actually in the process of drafting those up now for submission to uh, opposing counsel for the county. And we'll, we'll hammer something out, or if we can't, we'll pre present the disagreement to the judge, and he'll issue the orders in due course, because it's now mandated by his opinion. So okay. that shouldn't take very long. Uh, and so there, there is a state version of this prune response uh, policy, right? Oh, yeah. That has passed recently as well. Uh, what's the status of that one? That's Senate Bill One. Um, that's uh, sensitive areas legislation, um, and that created a whole host of sensitive areas for permit holders, where permit holders were not allowed to carry. Uh, that was much more narrowly draw, uh, drawn than the Montgomery County ordinance. For example, right. it didn't have buffer zones. But it still and, has a pretty significant impact, right? Well, it did. And one of the things that it um, provided was a presumptive ban on carry on private property, otherwise open to the public. I That's call the it, vampire rule, people call the it. The vampire rule. I call it the Home Depot rule. So you could, it's provided that you could take your handgun with your permit into the parking lot, but not into the building. So you had to leave your handgun in the car if you were going to Home Depot and buy something. Right. And, and another provision that said you can't ever bring your handgun or any firearm into a place that is licensed to sell alcohol for on-site mm -hmm. consumption. Alcohol and cannabis. Apparently that's where Maryland's going is on-site consumption of cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was struck down by the district court city in Baltimore, different district court. And both of those provisions were struck down, and along with another provision uh, under Buren that said that existing state statute that banned carry within a thousand feet of a public demonstration 
also lacked uh, any sort of uh, historical justification, and he struck that down from existing law. Now, that was a motion on a preliminary injunction, which, um, but he didn't, that's immediately appealable, and, but the court also denied without prejudice, which means that it's not a final ruling, uh, the cross motions for summary judgment that were also filed on the same basis. And so what the parties agreed to do, and like of the PI order, was that the court should now decide the cross motions of summary judgment. The parties did not require any discovery, did not require any further briefing, and that the court could proceed to decide the uh, summary judgment motions with, uh, uh, without further delay. That is beneficial for both sets of parties because you're no longer appealing a PI, which has a different standard of review. You're appealing a final judgment on the merits which uh, eliminates a lot of issues uh, for both sides because we want to appeal and the state will appeal and neither side wanted to, to deal with the PI aspects of it, which is an abuse of discretion standard review. Mm -hmm. So the judgment just moves the case along faster, basically. It will, a lot faster. Yeah. Um, and we'll get it up to the Fourth Circuit that much faster. So... But you won on... So you basically you've won on all these cases at this point. We, we won partially in the SB1 case. Mm -hmm. we, we didn't get everything we wanted. Like we didn't, we asked for a, a PI on uh, the existing ban that predated SB1 on mm -hmm. parks. And the judge said, well, it relied on the, a district court decision in the Montgomery County case, and, which is interesting. The, the federal Second Amendment claims in the Montgomery County case are in federal court, and the state claims on preemption are in state court. Right. So on the preliminary injunction motion that we filed in federal court under the Second Amendment against the Montgomery County Ordinance, making the same arguments, basically, except that under the Second Amendment, the court denied that preliminary injunction. And that's on appeal. Mm -hmm. We have an immediate right of appeal. And that appeal has been fully briefed. In fact, I'm going to be arguing that appeal on, on January 23rd. In the so Circuit. you're going after it for both for violating state preemption and for violating the Second, Second Amendment. Amendment. Right. You didn't. You weren't successful in the first phase of the Second Amendment claim, but you're. You've been successful in the first phase of the correct preemption claim. We okay. won completely on the preemption claim, so it's yeah. not a phase. It's a separate. But count. it could be appealed, is what I mean. It could be appealed. Certainly, they can. Uh, the state can appeal that. We don't that know yet. The state supreme court, yeah. eventually, and of course, the uh, denial of our PI on the Second Amendment goes to the Fourth Circuit, federal court of appeals. So, uh, you know, uh, just to just to bottom line everything, because I, I know we're, we're uh, going to move on to the news update soon here. Um, you've won these these uh, in these rulings. Uh, you're still waiting on the actual injunctions to, to come down in, in most of them. Um, what about the federal case against the state law? Is that is that in effect right now, that, that yes, injunction? That, that injunction is in effect. OK, so. People with carry permits are now permitted to carry in, in um, private property that is otherwise open to the public. Mm -hmm. uh, they are permitted to carry in restaurants that are serve um, alcohol for on-site consumption, and okay. are permitted to carry with a. You can't drink, food. of course. But you can't drink. Right. You know, the booze and alcohol. Um, I don't think anyone has a problem with that particular restriction, but yeah. No, we had no problem. We satisfied. We said right. the state has an existing law uh, on that very point, right. and we're fine with that. 
Um, uh, okay, so that case is that's in effect. People people are feeling that effect. They will soon feel the effect of these other two cases, uh, and there's potential that all of them are going to potentially be appealed. We don't know yet. The state the 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 state law uh, SB one that's very likely that's already in the process of being appealed. Is that no? It won't be appealed until the judge actually. Um Enters summary judgment. Both parties have said to the judge, uh, this Judge Russell, a federal Judge Russell in, in Baltimore, that mm. we're not going to appeal the preliminary injunction order. They want to appeal on the merits, but that's so but it hasn't wait. actually happened yet. But it hasn't happened when he enters. All these judgment, could be appealed, I guess. Is what I want to get, will get to the bottom line. So you know, this is you know, appellate advocacy. People yeah. need to keep paying attention to this stuff. Is I guess this my is, ultimate. Point. This is complicated. You know? Yeah. So yep. when that summary judgment is in, I'm sure that will be appealed. I'm sure the state will appeal it. I'm sure that we will appeal it because yep. they lost in part and we lost in part and we can appeal that. Right. So that will be in the Fourth Circuit. But the Montgomery County case, which has already been fully briefed and, and will be argued in January, will probably come first. And that's okay. sensitive areas type of analysis. At issue right. There. All right. Well, we will we will probably have to have you back on in the future then to, to round these up once they get to their final destination, which honestly, for some of them could take, you know, these cases sometimes years. take years. years. So uh, uh, hopefully, you know, uh, you'll be able to keep those injunctions in place uh, for your members, uh, as I imagine is what you're hoping in the meantime, at the very least. But uh, but yeah, no, we appreciate you coming on and explaining all this because I think it's a good time to update on what's going on with Maryland because we've got the, you know these you've had a lot of cases going and now you're starting you've gotten two in a row here where we actually got opinions and they came out in your favor so uh, I appreciate you us walking through that with us uh, and explaining the the different arguments at play and how they came out in each of those cases. Uh, well, if, and Stephen, it's not just Second Amendment. We have a First Amendment appeal that we're arguing in the Fourth Circuit uh, next week. Mm. Uh, and that affects um, what you can force um, firearms dealers to publish. Because in that case, a county has forced them to publish the suicide pamphlets and conflict resolution pamphlets uh, to everyone they every purchase. Mm. And Interesting. that's compelled speech under the First Amendment. and grossly unconstitutional. Yeah, so we'll have to keep an eye on that one as well, um, especially when we get a ruling in that case, we'll have to update everyone. Um, but yeah, we appreciate you you joining the show and we'll have to have you on again because this is, uh, you know, like I said, this is something people need to, especially if you're in Maryland or you ever want to carry a gun in Maryland um, uh, because you live or work uh, nearby, um, you got you to gotta keep up with it. For sure, just like any of these other things. So where, where, by the way, where can people uh, go and find uh, more about Maryland Shall Issue or follow your your advocacy? Well, we have a website like everyone else. It's a Maryland Shall Issue, all one word, dot org. Uh, so if you go to that website, within that website, we have a long articles on all of these cases. We have uh, a documents associated with each one of the cases uh, that you can download and they are free and access to, to everybody. You don't have to be a member. We have a big red button at the top that says, please join. So, or donate, um, because guess what? Litigation ain't cheap. Uh, I work for free. Uh, unless um, we win, I don't get paid. And if we win, um, the defendant pays. So and that's as it should be. That's the fee shifting statute, section 1988. But in the meantime, it's all pro bono. So, all the uh, people of MSI's officers and directors are all volunteers. So 
we punch well above our weight for a bunch okay. of years. Wonderful. Well, uh, we're going to head over to the news update now. Okay. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Steve Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing pretty good. My Broncos are finally rolling, uh, so I'm excited to see if that momentum can continue. We're looking like maybe a wild card team, which is pretty big news here in the city of Denver. Yeah, pretty weird. Uh, I mean, good for you guys. So is it five in a row? <laughs> yeah, five in a row and against pretty good teams at that. So uh, yeah, everyone's back on the Russell Wilson train after <laughs> wanting yeah. to run him out of town for I the last year. I guess he's not washed. I guess he's not washed like everybody thought. Um uh, we'll see if they can keep it up, but yeah, the, the Eagles are ten and one, right? Yep. And they're underdogs to the Niners at home. Oh, really? I didn't see that. Yeah, <laughs> they they started at three point underdogs. They're two and a half point underdogs, which I think is just. It's uh, honestly, it's a good thing for us because it's it's. I think when you're ten and one and you've beaten like all the good teams in the NFL, right? They beat the Chiefs. They beat the uh, they beat the Bills last week. Uh, you know, they beat the Cowboys. What it, it's probably hard to stay like motivated in that sense of or not get too high on yourself. And so, if Vegas gives you uh, makes you dogs at home when you're two games up on the your opponent, I think that probably gives you some motivation. Uh, plus it's a return the, of the everyone hates us and we don't care era is coming back, yeah. Uh, it's crazy that you can get that sort of one of the big things in the Super Bowl run, right? Was that they were underdogs the whole way because uh, Wentz got hurt and then Bowles came in, and we all know how that ended up. But uh, you know, it's kind of lucky to get uh, when your team is that good as a Super Bowl caliber team, you can still pull that motivation of being underdogs because that's not doesn't happen very often. I feel like right. um, so. Yeah, it's almost like a, a lucky thing. Well, I mean, obviously this, the the Niners are a great team, so they could win. Um, but I, yeah, I'd rather go into the game being an underdog because it gives it gives the guys a little more um, a little more energy, I think. And especially this team because they're like the Super Bowl run was built around that whole concept. So you make them right. underdogs; they really like that. They have a whole there's a bunch a bunch of sayings, um, shirts with the you know, hungry, uh, was it hungry dogs run faster kind of thing. So I don't know. We'll see. I, I do really want them to win because I find the 49ers, uh, the, the players after that, that loss in the NFC championship to be like some of the most whiny stuff ever. <laughs> <sighs> I don't know. I, I don't want to alienate too many people who listen to this that aren't. Yeah. Fans, but. Because uh, I'm sure Cowboys fans don't like when we talk about this, and uh, Niners fans won't like it either. But yeah, I'm just like they're still talking about it. They lost the game was 31 to seven. Uh, you know, like it wasn't some close game where, and yeah, of course they they lost their quarterback, and maybe it would have been a very different game if they hadn't. And we'll see how this game goes. But man, they really all acted like they would have blown us out, but they got blown. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, whatever. Uh, moving on from from polarizing sports talk. Um, <laughs> are you uh, you doing any shooting or anything like that coming up here? Uh, not probably not this weekend. I'm doing a little bit of a delayed friendsgiving this weekend, so that'll be probably take up most of my time. So no no shooting. What about yourself? Mm. 
Yeah, I uh, well, actually, you know, uh, the Guns Out guys, we've profiled them, had them on the show uh, before as well. Um, they they've opened like a new range here in uh, near Quantico, Virginia. And, uh, you know, that that looks really cool and exciting. So I'm hoping I can I don't know about this weekend, but I'm hoping in the near future I can go down there and, and try try some stuff out. It's an outdoor range, so it's a private range that's so not public. But, uh, you know, they're going to use it for exclusive events and stuff. We might do some reload events if that makes sense. Um, so I'm looking forward to to, um, you know, trying to figure out some of those details. But I also just want to kind of go down and try out the range. It's outdoor. It has steel. It looks really nice. Um, and we don't have anything like that in Northern Virginia uh, until you get like all the way out to the border with West Virginia. So uh, I don't know. Look, uh, it seems pretty cool. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, and I like to see those guys doing well because they're they're good dudes, uh, Sure, Michael and John. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping I can uh, put together some time with them to go go down there and, and try out their their new range. Yeah, that does sound cool. Yeah, but what do we got in terms of news? Yeah, so uh, in terms of links in the newsletter, we have an interesting investigation from ABC News. They looked into uh, sort of the aftermath of the Lewiston main mass shooting, and they discovered that use of the yellow flag law that was under so much scrutiny for obvious reasons in that shooting is is way up. Uh, It's been used 36 times since that shooting, which uh, they found out was about 30% of the total times it's ever been used in its history, just in the last, you know, few weeks or whatever. So clearly that incident put a spotlight on that law and police are using it more now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of it, right? Just people are more aware of it. Um, after a big news event happens that, uh, where it gets talked about a lot. Uh, so you get probably more requests for it to be used. And then also, uh, I think Cam Edwards talked about this when we, when we discussed red flag laws on the show, uh, a while back, you know, one of the critiques of them is is that they're likely to be abused or they're likely to be at least issued in uh, most cases because the judges or law enforcement who are requesting them, they don't want to be the, the ones who sort of let something fall through the cracks. So they're going to be really um, overly broad in the application of it. Uh, that's one of the critiques of, of red flag laws. So that, that may be playing a role here as well. Um, so, yeah, you have both increased visibility of the fact that this law exists and how to use it, which I'm sure most people, your average person who lives in a state that has one of these laws probably doesn't understand any of that, um, especially because they're still relatively new things. Uh, you, you know, the big push for red flag laws was in 2018. That's not that long ago. There were a couple states that had them before then, but most of them have been adopted since then. And so people are just not as aware of them. Um, as you know, especially compared to like me or you or people who listen to this podcast who are very up on gun policy stuff. But uh, so, yeah, I think that's part of it. And then, yeah, there's probably less people are the authorities are probably much more likely to go through with the process after seeing what happens if you if somebody what could happen if they didn't do it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, the other story from the links that we want to bring up is uh we have a story from Reuters about the National Association for Gun Rights or a gun rights group that is challenging Illinois' assault weapon ban. Um, and they are going back to the Supreme Court to try to get emergency intervention uh, on that case once again. So they did this previously and the court denied their request. Um, they're trying once more. So that's interesting to see if the court is willing to you know, take the unusual step of intervening. 
Yeah, they're going back to the ghost docket, which is what people call this. Um, these emergency requests, it's done, you know, not through the normal chain of appeals. This is uh, something where you can immediately uh, ask the Supreme Court to intervene. And you've seen that a couple of times since Bruin in, in, a, in a number of gun cases. And the court has denied all of these for gun rights plaintiffs, um, usually because they're, my understanding at least, is that it has to do with, um, you know, the court is more reluctant to issue uh, injunctions in on the emergency docket like that. Um, they seem more inclined to issue stays of uh, lower court rulings, which they also did for a gun case for the uh, the ghost gun uh, ATF ban. They've uh, intervened there on the using the the, the ghost docket, the uh, emergency docket. Uh, to say that the, a stay should be in place while this case moves forward. They haven't gone the other route to say an injunction should be in place to block a law while the case moves forward. So uh, it's probably a long shot given what the court has done so far, but we'll see, right? Um, you know, there's certainly a possibility. I think uh, the merits of the case, this is a the assault weapons ban case against a specific city in Illinois, uh, separate from the statewide assault weapons ban case that is also percolating through the courts. Um, the lower court has upheld the ban using logic that I think uh, the Supreme Court itself is unlikely to agree with. So there's some chance that they might feel inclined to step in on an emergency basis, but it's, it's, it definitely is more of a long shot. They have, uh, I think Justice Amy Coney Barrett is the one who oversees this circuit. And so she's referred this request to the court and she's asked for a briefing from the city, which is what you typically uh, see in these sorts of events. So the court is going to discuss this at least and uh, decide whether they want to intervene. Yeah. Like you said, it's probably a long shot, but it's certainly worth keeping an eye on just because of how high profile the issue is. Um, yeah. If they do step in, that's a huge, huge deal. Certainly. Um, and heading into some of the stories we wrote up this week, uh, you had one actually about Black Friday and gun sales, and we actually got some surprising results about uh, at least what looks like a, a really big Black Friday for gun sales. If you want to tell us what your reporting found. Yeah, it was the best ever. Well, gun we shouldn't say gun sales, I guess, because uh, sure. we want to be really careful about this, because what we're actually reporting on here are background checks from the National Institute Criminal Background Check System that the FBI runs. And yes, those are obviously associated with guns in a couple of different ways. And one of the, the most significant one, if you're trying to track gun sales, is background checks on gun sales. But uh, and you, we've reported on these numbers a lot, right? Uh, in fact, we should be getting the new numbers for November relatively soon. Uh, now that we're here in in December, and um, you know, this is uh, that's generally based on a, an industry analysis. The National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the industry's trade group, will go through the more detailed release that the FBI puts out every month that has that codes the background checks on what kind of check it is, because it's not just gun sales that they check. They also check permits, right? And some states will, uh, so the raw numbers can be way out of whack with what gun sales numbers are, or checks on gun sales specifically, because some states will actually recheck all of their uh, permit holders every single month. I know that Illinois does that. So Illinois has hundreds of thousands of uh, NICS checks each month that have nothing to do with gun sales. Um, so, uh, you know, and these numbers aren't one-to-one -one anyway. 
because you can, some states allow you to bypass an X check if you have a uh, concealed carry permit. They'll do it as a permit check. So sometimes permit checks can be actual gun sales. Anyway, you get the, the point here is that these numbers aren't, uh, even the best of times aren't total perfect analogs for gun sales. Um, but you aren't able to do that kind of analysis, that kind of breakdown with the numbers that the FBI puts out for Black Friday. They just give you a single number. Now, it's still a, an apples to apples comparison to other Black Fridays because that's how they've always done it. And this Black Friday was saw the most background checks of any, um, which does probably indicate that the that sales were up. And that comes after we saw October sales were up year over year, um, which is something that we hadn't seen very often, right? I think there's only been like maybe two or three months this year where gun sales were up over the previous year. The rest of them saw significant declines. Um, and so that could be an indication that we've been talking about this for years now, but the industry is looking for that floor, that sales floor. Where is this going to settle out after the huge surge we saw in 2020 and 2021? Uh, sales have been declining ever since then, but uh, which is typical. The industry goes in cycles uh, and they tend to be cycles surrounding some sort of chaotic event or in the case of 2020, multiple chaotic events. Uh, right. It was kind of the perfect storm for motivating people to go buy a gun. Uh, and especially because you had all sorts of different uh, incidents that motivated all kinds of different people with different belief structures and backgrounds to go buy guns. But um, regardless, we've been waiting. The industry and observers have been waiting to see where is the new floor going to be? Usually it settles out a bit above where the old highs were. And we are still at that point, even though this year is likely to be down a bit from last year. Uh, it's still above 2019 and all the Trump years, essentially. So um, other than 2020, of course. But. Yeah, it's just it's just one piece of evidence, but it's uh, it's a notable one. You know, the, the biggest Black Friday ever for Nick's checks uh, is is pretty notable. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, we'll, of course, be keeping an eye on this as, uh, as things move forward, just trying to figure out where that trend's going. And, and like you said, where that new floor is. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and the last big story we want to talk about this week is a new bill that's been actually been introduced in the U.S. Senate. Uh, it's. Yeah, by Senators Angus King from Maine, the Independent from Maine, and Martin Heinrich from New Mexico. Uh, they introduced the Gas-Operated Semi-Automatic Firearms Exclusion Act, or GoSafe Act. Uh, basically, it's just a, a, another attempt at an assault weapon ban, but they went about it in a pretty novel way in terms of how they're defining the weapons that will be banned. Um, so, yeah, pretty, pretty big deal that they're going back to the well for an assault weapon ban, and it, it's interesting the way they're going about it this time. Yeah, definitely. And and it's particularly interesting because of who's involved, right? You had King and Heinrich. You also had uh, what Bennett and um, there was right. the fourth. Who's the fourth? Uh, Mark Kelly from Arizona. Yeah, Mark Kelly from Arizona. Now, these are it, it's interesting because these guys have had a reputation of being more moderate as far as Senate Democrats go on gun policy. You know, King was involved in blocking uh, Chipman uh, from becoming the ATF director. Um, you know, these other guys have not made gun control a major part of their platforms, although obviously Mark Kelly is married to Gabby Giffords, who runs a gun control organization. Uh, and I will say that all of them at some point have supported 
a soul opens band. So it's 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 interesting, right? Because they're not they're certainly not the people out in front of this issue generally. Right. And that's one thing that makes it newsworthy to me. Right. It's um, not Chris Murphy, for example, you know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it's also not uh, you know, John Tester or uh, yeah. or Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema. So they don't have those people on board. They don't have any Republicans at this point. And I'm I do feel like if they if they was if they were likely to get somebody like Susan Collins, the other uh senator from Maine, on board, they would have already done that. Now it's not impossible she joins now that they've announced maybe they just didn't coordinate things very well. That seems unlikely to me. Like they probably did try to get her on board and she's not on board. So they have no Republican support. They don't even have the most uh moderate of Democrats on this issue, Tester and, and Cinema and Manchin on, on board. So it tells me that they probably don't even have 50 votes for this, uh, even still. That's why the Solvins ban that passed the House last year never came up for a vote in the Senate, most likely not because of the filibuster, which is what gets blamed, but because they probably don't have 50 votes for one. Um, and, you know, this does seem, as you alluded to there, as a kind of a rebranding, a tactics change to try and jumpstart this in the Senate among uh, at least Democrats, try to get all 50 Democrats on board or 50, what, 51 Democrats on board at this point. And um, I don't know if it, we'll see if it works, but that's, I think, what makes it particularly interesting. Uh, but yeah, it's, also what makes it interesting is just the way it's written as, you, <laughs> as you're getting yeah. it. Like you did a whole analysis piece. Let's just walk through real quick some of the oddities in this bill like what what is i mean and this is gonna think be hard to explain to somebody who actually knows about firearms terminology right because right. you you heard from the name right they put in gas operated as part of the definition and angus king is going out he was on msnbc and he was selling this as uh kind of less a moderate approach to solvents bans and more like a response to some of the common criticisms of the solvents bans being focused on cosmetic features or ergonomic features, things like pistol grips or telescoping stocks, stuff like that uh, is what has traditionally made a type of uh, semi-automatic rifle band. Um, instead, they're focused on, they really just don't have any feature exceptions is what they do. And, and they try to, they try to imply that this is, based on the operating system of the gun, gas operated, right? But the problem, what, well, I guess I can let you explain. What's the big problem with that? Uh, how do they define gas operated? Yeah, so essentially their definition of gas, op I can actually probably read it to you here, but essentially for all intents and purposes, their definition of gas operated is essentially just semi-automatic. It says a, yeah. a gas operated semi-automatic firearm is one that, Quote, harnesses or traps a portion of the high gas pressure from a fired cartridge to cycle the action. Which, I mean, that's how all semi-automatic firearms operate, right? To one extent right. or another. But that's not the definition that most people, most people understand guns would under, would would use for gas operated. Gas operated, right. they have, they do lay out like piston driven, gas operated, direct impingement, uh, gas operated guns in the part of their gas operated definition. But the problem is then they also include things like blowback and recoil operated guns, which traditionally in the gun space, at least, is not they aren't considered to be gas hopper because they're not using, uh, you know, siphoning off some of the, the gas from the 
that's expelled when you shoot a round to actually operate the gun. They, they rely on just strictly the forces being uh, propelled backwards, you know, recoil or, or blowback. Right. Um, you could maybe, I mean, all these things you could say in theory are involved the, the gas being expelled right. when you fire a gun, but that's not how it has traditionally been broken down in right. for most uh, people who talk about the, this, this level of, uh, uh, you know, gun knowledge, right? Like if you're watching forgotten weapons or some Ian McCollum over there, that, that kind of stuff, you're looking at how the gun actually operates gas operated doesn't usually mean people don't take that to mean recoil operated or blowback, but that's what the, this build does define it that way. Um, right. but, <clears throat> and so it sort of essentially bans any semi-automatic rifle, right. That can well, accept a detachable the, magazine. Right. Essentially the definition bans all semi-automatics, but to get away, right. get around the controversy of obviously, I think that would be a bridge too far guns. for most people. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah, just put in guns. exceptions in there to say, well, we're not talking about semi-automatic shotguns. We're not talking about recoil operated handguns. So by their definition of what's banned, it's all semi-automatics, but they're like, but this doesn't apply to these things that also fall within this definition, but we just, we don't care about those as much. So that's right. kind of how they get around that. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it basically bans any semi-automatic that can accept a magazine. Um, and then it makes a bunch of exceptions for all, I mean, there's some really broad ones, like you mentioned, all semi-automatic shotguns, for whatever reason, are exempted, regardless of how they operate. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, they just, and then some semi-automatic handguns are accepted, or I guess most of your popular ones, right? Uh, recoil operated. Uh, so your Glocks and your your uh, Smith and Wesson M&P line, or your Sig 320s, whatever stuff like that. Although it doesn't, it would still ban a bunch of other stuff, like uh, even like a high a high point, right? High points are are straight blowback guns. That's why their slides are so thick, because um, it only exempts recoil operated. Um, That's right. You know, your your Browning tilt action guns, your nineteen eleven stuff like that. Um, anything with a fixed barrel, like a, um, uh, even like the so really high end stuff like the Lago Alien would would probably be uh, banned under this because it's blowback with a gas delay system and we're getting really <laughs> into the details of this <laughs> but it's, it's just kind of funny because it's like you read this bill and it's people whoever wrote this it's like they looked up some terms didn't really understand them and then just tossed them in here. Um, because uh, like they exempt things for some reason, they go out of their way in the semi-auto ban to exempt things that aren't semi-automatic anyway. Like right. bolt action handguns are exempted by, in, written into the law as an exemption. Um, you know, uh, it's it's pretty bizarre the way they, they did this. And you have a lot more detail in your members piece, which, by the way, our Black Friday sale is still going on. Uh, it'll end uh on Monday when this goes public, but uh, people still have a chance to go and, and buy a membership for 20% off. We don't do those sales very often. So I would say uh, take the, take the opportunity and you can go and read every weird detail about this bill. Cause there's a lot more than what we're getting at here. Yeah. Uh, they absolutely. even, they even go after, you know, there's a sort of bump stock ban written in here and it, and it exemplifies exactly why there was concern about doing that legislatively in 2018 or um after the las vegas shooting 
because the way they've written this into law is could certainly be construed to ban basically any modification to any semi-automatic any semi-automatic of any kind they don't for some reason they don't include gas operated there it's just semi-automatic um so it would include your regular glock or or smith and wesson handguns and uh anything that makes it fire materially faster so yeah i would imagine that would include things like upgraded triggers um stiffer recoil springs uh yeah even a grip perhaps you know you change out your grip module and you can shoot faster than you could before because you can get a better grip that materially increases the uh rate at which you can fire the gun uh, now it doesn't change the cycling speed of the gun right but uh the goal here seems to be more about your ability i mean the bump stock doesn't change the cycling speed of a gun it just lets you pull the trigger faster than you otherwise would be able to um so yeah there, and there's even more than that there's a whole like private right of action if the, the ag gets a lot of power in this to just decide who what they think are gas operated guns semi-automatics that are subject to this ban there's a whole bureaucratic process put in place for that and there's a there's even a private right of action for opposing the attorney general if you think he again a gun should have been on the list and it was taken off um so there, there's a lot people should go check out your piece uh, about it uh, uh, it's a it's a very odd it's a very odd bill. Yeah, it's, it's an odd bill. People should check it out. Like we said at the top of this segment, it, it doesn't, it's probably dead on arrival. It's not going to pass at least through the 2024 election. But the fact that they went to this strategy, uh, I think is at least noteworthy that people should, it, it's important as a story for people to, to see the strategic, because yeah, obviously assault weapon bans have been introduced for, you know, since the 90s. Yeah. yeah. And, and it hasn't gotten anywhere. Since then, yeah. I mean, you've had right. a couple in recent years. You've seen like Delaware and Illinois. Sure, at the them. state level, they've passed the traditional ones. But obviously yeah. at the federal level, it's gotten nowhere. And so to see a, a new strategic attempt to try to repackage mm -hmm. one, I think is noteworthy because maybe it, it could be a new trend. So Exactly. And that's why we covered this, right? I mean, because we don't, we don't go out and cover every bill that gets introduced. Um, right. There's, there's lots of gun-related bills that get introduced all the time. There's even some that come up for votes. Uh, we don't necessarily spend a lot of time covering them because – they're almost exclusively messaging bills and they aren't really any different from the last time that the Congress sent the same message. You know, there's stuff like that that happens. We don't, we don't cover it. Um, and so we try, we have to, uh, you know, pick and choose what we think are the most important pieces each week. And uh, this was one that made the cut just because of the people involved. You know, the, it is a novel bill. It takes the, they're trying to get to the same place as an assault weapons ban, um, but it takes a different approach. It's does have the benefit of being a bit goofy. So you can kind of be like, this is weird. <laughs> that, that makes it a little more interesting too. But, uh, but primarily it, it's like you said, it, there's a, there's a political aspect to this that I think makes it newsworthy um, beyond what a lot of other bills that get introduced are. Like if, if Murphy had introduced this, it would, it might still be vaguely in, interesting and worth talking about if it was just because of the intricacies of how the bill works but um because it was king and uh and these other three moderate-ish democratic senators 
it, it does become, I think, a bit more worth looking at, even though it, there's no chance it becomes law before the next election. Yeah. Because this could be the way that they move forward. This it seems like it certainly seemed designed as a response to common critiques of assault weapons bans that they're too yeah. focused on cosmetic features. It doesn't do a particularly good job of responding to those critiques, I think, for some of the reasons we laid out. But but it does seem to be that, uh, and and maybe you know they'll refine it further, uh, and and they're so this is the could be the start of that kind of trend too. You know, it's just something I think ends up being relevant enough for us to to write about and to talk about. Um, and yeah, but if people want to read more about it and get look at the text of the bill, they can head over to reload.com. They can pick up a membership to read your member exclusive piece on it, as well as hundreds of other member exclusive pieces that we have available only to our members. Uh, of course, if you buy a membership, you will also get this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment, which I have one scheduled coming up here soon, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, and, of course, you'll get the ability to comment on all of our stories as well. That is another member-exclusive perk. Uh, and you will get a Sunday newsletter that is only for members. That gives uh, gives you um, all of our member pieces for the week and a little, more, a little bit more analysis and insight into, you know, what's going on with with uh, Guns in America, but also with, you know, what we're up to, uh, put updates about the farm and stuff in there too, sometimes for, for members who like to read that kind of stuff too. Um, yeah, but, uh, it's a good deal. And I think, uh, right now is the best time to buy cause it's 20% off. If you go over to the reload.com right now and purchase membership. So that's all we've got for this week. Uh, we will see you again real soon. If you like the show, please share it with uh, people you think might be interested in it. Uh, leave a rating of wherever you're listening to this or leave a comment on YouTube. Thumbs up. Any, anything helps. You know, we appreciate it. But uh, we will see you guys again real soon.